Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month I'm exploring the films of Mike Lee, as recommended by Tyler Smith of Battleship Retention, and in this week's episode I'll be talking about Mike Lee's multi-Oscar-nominated, zero-Oscar-winning 1996 film, Secrets and Lies. Um, and I don't highlight that to um, stress that uh, I, I, I was pleased with the lack of awards for this film or, or the recognition for it, but more of um, I'm actually kind of shocked uh, because of how really good I actually found this film was, which uh, perhaps there is something to be said about um, the my response to it in conjunction with how negatively I responded to Naked. Uh, but nevertheless, this was um, nominated for five Oscars in 1996. Uh, was the only Best Picture nominee to not win any Oscars, and that was because, um, if you want to take a trip with me down memory lane, this was the year of The English Patient, um, in which all five of the uh, nominations that uh, Secrets and Lies were up for were taken by Secrets and Lies, with the exception of Best Supporting Actress. Um, that was uh, uh, Marianne John Baptiste in, in this film, but losing out um, deservedly, or not deservedly so, but um, understandably so, to Francis McDormand in Fargo. But um, Secrets and Lies, I hesitate to say that I loved this movie because it's exhausting and I don't think I ever want to watch it again, but it's an exceptionally made film. Um, what Lee, uh, this this film really shows, I think, what Lee is capable of as a director, what Tyler was talking uh, to me um, about Mike Lee being a, a great director, not necessarily one that is going to be known for his camera movements or his editing style or that kind of thing, but just how he kind of um, crafts uh, a film, how he coaxes such great performances out of actors, and then also um, his exploration of class divide. Uh, There's kind of a surface level, um, kind of aesthetic, um, and maybe a little bit of like an attitudinal um, approach to that in Naked. I mean, we kind of saw it in the scenes in which um, David Thewlis' character is kind of walking around uh, London late at night or um, in the contradiction between him and that um, asshole psychotic rapist character uh, who is kind of the the, the um, Patrick Bateman type of character. But but it, that sort of just kind of uh, existed as sort of context to, to, to kind of give depth and, and flesh out the characters in Naked, whereas in this one... Um, it really, uh, it makes it much more of, I mean, there's still a background setting, it still exists as part of the context, but it instead bleeds into the truth of the characters and is um, kind of inseparable from um, how the characters um, identify both for themselves and for other people and how these relationships are sort of tangled up in each other and what the what emotions are at stake and, and how everyone sort of um, interacts and, and sort of dances with and around each other until this kind of ultimate um, culmination or climax, whatever you want to um, consider it. But um, 
let's let's start talking about the, the performances first and foremost. We're kind of gonna I'm going to kind of break this into two sections though. The first section is going to be much longer and lengthier because it is talking in great detail about the performances and Mike Lee's um, ability to kind of get those performances out of his actors. But I'm gonna I want to talk about kind of the the performances. Um, these two things that I think uh, was really exemplary of Lee in this film and, and the performances and the the discussion of the class divide and how he. Um, uh, is able to get one out of uh, out of some people, and then how he's able to use that to explore the other, basically. So let's start first talking about the performances. Um, and, I, and I already knew that Lee was capable of getting good, uh, nay, great performances out of people because of what he was able to do and what David Thewlis was able to do with his character in Naked. Um, as you may recall from my last episode, um, I was not a big fan of that film, and I was even kind of ha- uh, casting a skeptical eye towards Thulis's character because of just sort of how reprehensible of a character he was, and yet I, I also have to concede that despite my um, plethora of problems with Naked um, as a film, as a, an attitude, basically, I do have to concede that the work that the two of them did with that character did add a little bit of nuance to it, and he wasn't just a one-dimensional, one-note character. He was a shitty character. I'll say that. He was certainly not a person that I would want to be friends with. Um, but Lee was not necessarily judgmental or co- or condemning of him. He wasn't supporting of him and he wasn't affirming of him either, but he did sort of bring some depth to this character and recognition that um, there are other factors at play in this character's life, in this character's uh, development, in social and financial uh, a context that shaped him to be the person who he is, and he wasn't unsympathetic about that. Um, but also, once again, he was not necessarily saying, look at this wonderful, admirable character. Um, we, Tyler and I talked about it in the introductory episode, but uh, of course, uh, you know, you, we can't kind of get into a larger discussion of Lee's uh, coaxing great performances out of actors unless we first kind of talk about his style and how he does it. And of course, it is... Um, you know, improvisational, and and when I kind of first heard that, I, the misconception I had was that, you know, he casts his actors, he just kind of starts filming, and they kind of improvise and and do a bunch of takes, and then sort of like an edit, it's like, oh, why don't we keep this scene and this performance, and it's going to be great, you know, kind of going in really without a script, just kind of an outline, kind of similar to how, um, this is a weird connection to make, but how um, Gareth Edwards, uh, created monsters basically just kind of taking his actors and going to location having an outline and just kind of seeing what um hashes out but that's not actually what he does um he instead kind of hires his actors works with them in conjunction and collaboration with them and together they form these characters and they they work for weeks sometimes even months to kind of flesh out these characters their stories their attitudes their emotions their relationships with each other and then based on that and then based on uh, the skeletons, <laughs> that's, that's the wrong word, but I, I guess based on the, the, um, the, the kind of blueprint that they all kind of sketch out together, then he writes a script based on that. So um, I was kind of cynical years ago when Happy Go Lucky got the best Oscar uh, nomination for, uh, or the Oscar nomination for best original screenplay, because it's like, well, how can you have a screenplay if there's so much improvisation involved? Um, but it really is like he does have a screenplay, but just they do so much work together before that script is written that it's sort of like, you know, uh, the script version of, of a great deal of pre-production before you, you go into shooting a movie. So um, it's a great approach because it, it sort of it helps 
builds nuance in these characters. It kind of helps shape them and, and make sure that they're kind of three-dimensional characters and not just these one-dimensional notes coming in. Um, and it, it helps also then kind of establish relationships between these characters. And, and it's interesting to me, too, because it also sort of undercuts, uh, to an extent, the idea of, of the director as ultimate auteur or this ultimate kind of dictator um, in the sense of the film kind of being driven solely by one person's um, themes or inspirations. Um, now, having said that, that's certainly not to say that there is no, you know, Mike Lee's fingerprints are not all over this movie. Um, and, you know, there, there are still some kind of flaws because in collaboration with each other certainly means that the actors have almost as much say, if not, you know, as much say as the director does. But then there's still going to be the directorial influence of that individual person. And so if there is... Um, something that a viewer like myself might find problematic with an approach or an attitude that the director has, the film is not going to be removed from that. Um, and, you know, what I certainly think about is that there are some, there's one major kind of misstep and flaw with some of these, uh, with a couple of these characters, and I will talk about that much later in this podcast. Um, but, you know, this approach also leads to some true moments of inspiration and beauty, such as um, <clears throat> when you read that uh, while crafting these characters, he, you know, I, I guess um, relevant to the, the, the title of this film, if you will, um, that he kind of kept some information from his actors. And specifically, um, when it came to Brenda Blethyn um, and Marianne Jean-Baptiste, who, of course, play Cynthia and Hortense respectfully in this film, um, he did not tell Blenda, uh, Blenda, excuse me, Brenda Blethyn that Marianne Jean-Baptiste was black. He withheld that information from her, and the first time that they actually met was the first time that they filmed the scene of them meeting together at the train station, basically. So what you see on screen, and I don't know if that's the first take that he's got up there uh, or what take that might have been, but the emotion and the reaction is authentic and real even if it's not the first take that we see on screen there, there's still the the kind of emotional imprint of the surprise of who are you you're not the person that i expected is still within the dna of that actress and of that scene and that's really great um it's great that he is able to kind of work with the characters or, or work with the uh, the actors like that to kind of craft these relations and to kind of put them in an emotional space where then they are going to get the kind of reactions that he is hoping for where they're going to have the kind of relationship and the kind of emotions that is going to make this film work because this is not a plot driven film this is a character driven film so you need to have those actors fully realizing their characters and he absolutely does and it's 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 quite wonderful and um it does lead to um, the this film kind of at times feeling like an emotional roller coaster in the sense of they are so fully inhabiting and so committed to an emotion that sometimes it's quite extreme and then it pulls back and you just kind of go through the ringer when it comes to the peaks and the valleys of so much emotion. And, and I want to quote from um, Roger Ebert, as I pretty much always do. Uh, this is Ebert's um, entry uh, for Secrets and Lies into his great movies canon in which he says... Um, Although he makes some characters into caricatures, there is a compassion in his work that acts like a safety net. Characters who seem over the top in one scene have a way of rounding out later in a film. That's true of Brenda Blethyn's performance in Secrets and Lies as Cynthia Purley, a factory worker who rattles discontentedly around the little row house she was born in and regards Roxanne, her 20-year-old daughter, with despair. Cynthia seems an analogy of raw sadness and worry, but she will be transformed when her worst nightmare comes true. Um... And 
it is great that these characters experience kind of this these wide swath of emotions um anything from like from feeling pathetic to feeling joyous both and they can do this within a scene or without scenes um there can be a scene in which um Cynthia is so kind of seemingly at first so over the top and dramatic and crying and sad uh but then it is sort of uh matched or I don't want to say overshadowed, but then it is sort of anchored or arced by a scene later on in the film where, where she might be so happy and she might be so joyous. I was watching this with my fiance, and I remember after the scene where sort of Roxanne uh, pushes her down on the bed and runs out, I, I made a comment that was something like, you know, I, I hope there's going to be more to this character than just being sad and pathetic. Um, because don't get me wrong, my, my heart went out to Cynthia and this, and this character, but also to relate to a character or to have a connection with a character just because you feel sympathy or pity for them is is it's not mature i guess for lack of a better word or or, or it's a it's a weak filmmaking um approach so um kind of feeling that and kind of thinking like it wasn't just like oh i hope things improve for this character but i was there was also kind of a selfish thing in the sense of like i, I hope that this character has more depth because I, I want to enjoy this movie or I want to relate to something or I want to connect to it. So I hope there's more to her than just kind of this sadness and despair. And then, of course, later on in the film, once she uh, finally connects with Hortense and once they finally start to get to know each other, you see uh, scenes of just relief and joy and, and adulation that's coming from her when they're out at the bar, you know, and she, she gets dressed up, she does her hair, she goes to the hairdresser, she puts on a nice dress and they go out and they see a movie and they go to the bar and you just see like a, like real scenes of intimacy and warmth and it's and that is great because it's the balance to the thing that we saw earlier and yet also within scenes he does the same thing where there is kind of a, an arc and an, and an emotional journey within the scenes and I, I you know I'm thinking of course of that very first long take conversation when Cynthia and Hortense first do meet each other um, and what's amazing is how Brenda Blethyn is just kind of able to take you along on this emotional journey of what she's going through and just experiencing basically kind of every emotion that you can possibly think of. I mean, she's in denial at first and then she's ashamed and then she's kind of remorseful and then she's proud and then she's happy. And you see this all kind of taking place on her face and, and, and in her emotions and just, um, the, the the kind of when 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 uh, when Hortense kind of you know finally convinces like no we, you know you know this is right and and this is actually correct what I what I'm telling you and she says you know something to the effect of I've I've never been with a black man I, I would have remembered that and then she kind of stops and then you see contemplation you see recollection and then you see this cascading just like downward into this emotional kind of shame in which she doesn't want to speak about and. The implication, at least, I think seems pretty clear as to what happened there, um, but it transpires entirely all on uh, and through the facial uh, expressions of, of Brenda Blethyn, and it's, it's quite wonderful. And, and yet she's so overdramatic at certain times when she keeps apologizing for things and she keeps calling Hortense sweetheart, and you kind of almost want to laugh at certain times, not because it's necessarily funny, but because you're sort of being brought to this emotional place which is uncomfortable and you almost kind of want to laugh to kind of feel some relief from it. And with Brenda Blethyn being so kind of overdramatic, in order to kind of match that, you need to kind of have someone who balances that. And it's great to see um, Marianne Jean-Baptiste kind of being the stoic one, not necessarily not showing any emotion. She does. You see a journey that she is going through as well. And that journey is more sort of like a kind of 
within herself of kind of grappling of, you know, not is she disappointed with this mother figure, but also like, how do I reconcile the character of who I am, the successful businesswoman versus this woman who kind of seems to be so almost kind of self-loathing and, and self-pitying. And, and, and you can almost kind of see the gears turning in her head in the sense of like, do I want to kind of continue this relationship? And her performance is a lot more subtle um, than Brenda Blethyn's is, but it's it's equally as effective and it's equally as wonderful. And, and you kind of see that... Um, development between the two of them and you even see the arc there, there there's a, a part which i thought was so small but wonderful in which uh cynthia asks her what she does for a living and she tells her I, i'm i'm an optometrist I, I do tests on eyes as as to what she says to kind of explain it and you see a small smile on her face and she says like oh you know something in fact like isn't isn't that wonderful and you kind of see her either trying to feel pride or wanting to feel proud because she's still trying to grasp with this concept of this is my daughter and and and, and someone that my offspring is able accomplish this and and my offspring is is an accomplished person and and if if this person could come for me then maybe i i i'm not so bad either um that is all stuff that i'm projecting of course on it but i i think um it's not going to be it's not entirely just what i'm bringing to the film uh, that I'm pasting on there. I think there has to be something there that Mike Lee um, laid the groundwork for that I could kind of uh, build on. That was a, a terrible metaphor, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, and, and then you also kind of see this in the second long take, the long take during the birthday party. Um, and, and and that one just kind of seems like, oh my God, it's so it's it's such a fucking tense conversation because... With all the buildup to it, I mean, with uh, Hortons and Cynthia kind of establishing their relationship and uh, knowing how tense it's been between Maurice and Monica and uh, that there's this big secret in the sense of here's here's my daughter that she hasn't told anyone about. You you were expecting something to happen. You know there's going to be a blow up and you're expecting it at any moment and yet it doesn't happen, not in that conversation. And yet by placing the camera just static in front of the picnic table or not the picnic table but the table outside and just watching them sort of eat and watching them kind of go about it and not moving the camera not zooming in not tilting not panning not dollying but just kind of leaving it there and without cutting there's nothing to relieve the tension you're just kind of sitting there and you're expecting in your head you're kind of thinking like okay here's the countdown 10 9 8 and then it never comes and the fact that it never comes it makes it more anxious like it's sort of that thing of you, you feel like there's a bomb under the table and it's going to go off at any second and waiting for it to go off is even worse than it going off in, in a certain way. And the countdown instead, you know, the, the, the metaphorical equivalent of the countdown of these numbers kind of ticking down or some type of element kind of ticking down to this ultimate explosion are these little looks and these little comments that people are giving that if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss of Roxanne um, or Maurice kind of asking uh, Hortense, like, how, how do you know, Cynthia? What do you do in the factory? And, and, and Hortense kind of trying to change the subject. And Maurice kind of looking back when he's at the grill, kind of a little bit curious. Or um, Cynthia trying to change the conversation. Or Cynthia trying to, kind, trying to say, you know, bring up something that Hortense has done that she can be proud of and hoping that someone latches onto it and runs with it. And just these little looks and these little ticks, um, you kind of know with each one, this is getting closer and closer and closer to what this, um, to an explosion. And then the explosion comes, and and along with it, I think, is the film's one major stumble. Uh, but before I kind of talk about that, I, I do want to actually get back into this idea of the class divide that I was talking about. And um, Lee does a great job of exploring um, 
how Maurice and Monica as a couple are distant and different from uh, Cynthia and Roxanne as like, not as a couple, but as a coupling, I guess, of, of these pairs um, without really kind of hitting you over the head with it. I mean, there are some there's some seeds planted. There's some groundwork laid where there's a comment in the film of they're talking about Maurice and Monica's house. And this is like, who even what do they even need six bedrooms for anyway? Um, and, and you even kind of see it when Maurice comes to visit Cynthia for the first time in it, it would seem like years uh, in which he has to step out outside and use an outhouse to go to the bathroom he has to use an outhouse in london in 1996 um, which is something that you know i didn't even think was existed anymore and it's there and we see it happening but you know maurice doesn't make some type of offhand comment like oh i can't believe you don't have indoor plumbing or something he it's it's there to provide the context and the depth but it's not there to kind of you know but he's not kind of pushing it in your face as i said you know with what he was kind of doing with naked he's just sort of he puts it there to kind of add a, a an emotional context for these people um and and what's interesting too is that well, I don't want to say that race isn't uh an issue i mean certainly there is some surprise by both or from both hortense and cynthia that they are mother daughter it's also not made a a wedge or a point of division between any of the characters. When the revelation finally comes out that, yes, this is Hortense and she's my daughter, and yes, Roxanne, you have a sister, people aren't upset because, like, well, oh my god, I can't believe that you had a child with a black man, or I can't believe that this, that, that my that my sister or, or, or whoever this character now is, is black. It's more just kind of the, the shock and the surprise of how could you have kept something like this from us how could you have kept this secret for so long basically um and uh, there there's a there's a scene right before um shortly before the uh the the backyard kind of um dinner conversation in which monica is taking um i believe paul and roxanne and cynthia through a tour of the house and she's showing off um, you know, they have multiple bathrooms, you know, Maurice and Monica both have separate bathrooms, like, this is our linen closet, this is where our hot water heater is, this is this room, this is our bedroom, this is our four-post bed, we've always wanted something like this, and, and, uh, Maurice's, um, assistant at the photography studio, who I still have no idea why he felt it appropriate to bring her along to a dinner party, um, even says something in effect like, oh, this is, like, a, out of a fantasy, or, or something, or a fairy tale, like, it's, it's just, Monica is kind of showing off in a way um but I, the how i interpreted that scene at least was not monica or yeah, yeah it was not monica showing off or being arrogant but monica being proud of something because as as we find out eventually later on they're they're well we don't find out we could we could have inferred it that their monica and maurice's big point of tension is monica is unable to have children and so i think what lee is trying to do with that scene is monica trying to have 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 a have something that she can show off have have a source of pride for something and yet because we're kind of viewing that through the lens of Cynthia who we've been following through the majority of this movie it does come across as arrogance or condescension or at least that's how, that's how she's interpreting it and certainly adds eventually to this revelation of you know Hortense is my daughter because she sees what what her husband or sorry her husband what her brother and her sister-in-law have 
Um, she sees the, the money that Maurice gives to Roxanne and just kind of sees all these things that she could not only give to her daughter now, that she could not have given to Hortense ever because of the fact that she gave Hortense up to her daughter. And there's just, despite this emotional journey that she's gone through of kind of finding some val- uh, some validity and an affirmation in herself and, and finding some value in herself as a person through this relationship with her daughter, it kicks up again these these feelings of... of feeling inconsequential, feeling not good enough. And and so it just kind of breaks and she kind of comes out and like, this is Hortense, this is my daughter. And with this eventual explosion, as I said, comes the film's greatest stumble and in which Maurice kind of gives voice to not just the title of the film, uh, Secrets and Lies, which, all right, I get it. Um, but you know, he he becomes the mouthpiece for, I guess, the, the theme of this film, but it, it's also, it falls very flat because he's also uh, symptomatic of the least developed subplot in this film because we spend most of our time with Cynthia and with Hortense and with Roxanne and, and exploring those relationships and how they work together. And Maurice and Monica are sort of not left to the side, but what becomes of their subplot or, or or what we see of their subplot kind of are, are resorting instead to them being caricatures um there's a there, I, I was wondering when i was watching early in the film that there are so many shots and scenes where we're seeing maurice interact with the people he is he is photographing and of course it, it comes out later that it's like well because he spends so much of his life trying to make other people happy but the thing is we only know that because he explicitly said to us, I've spent so much of my life trying to make other people happy. And if you have to say that, it's not earned. Um, and, and, and we do kind of have this, uh, or we're supposed to feel the sense of like the great burden that Maurice was carrying around with him. And that burden just didn't feel earned at all. Um, I was watching it with my fiance, and when it happened, her comment was, oh, good. The man is saintly, and all the women are crazy. Um, and I understand where she came from when she said that, because how are we meant to believe, after all that we've seen everyone else go through, that Maurice is the one who is carrying around this huge burden? The fact that Lee has to kind of make his character say it, the fact that Timothy Spall has to say it, just kind of exemplifies the fact that you we didn't spend enough time with this couple to make this pain believable or earned i was fully on board with the the relationship between cynthia and hortense and roxanne and even paul paul's not much of a character either but if you watch him during the dinner sequence oh my god he's so fucking awkward um and that's and that's supposed to be the case you see like he doesn't seem to know how to react he doesn't know what to do with his hands he doesn't know how to respond because what 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 is one supposed to do when such shit like that comes out and you're just kind of sitting there as a bystander basically I believed all of that stuff, but I didn't believe the Maurice and the Monica relationship. I did. It, it just it didn't feel earned to me. And that is, I think, the film's one major stumble, basically, is that um, I don't need you to tell me the themes of the film when you've done such a good job for 95% of the film building it up and subtly kind of explaining, uh, you know, laying the groundwork for it, and then having your mouthpiece at the end saying, this is what the film is all about, and I'm going to tell you because of how put upon I've been. It just, it really didn't feel earned to me. Um, and uh, that's kind of unfortunate because I like Timothy Spall as an actor. I think he does very good work for the most part. And it's just, uh, unfortunately, um, he uh, and the actress who plays his wife, Monica, who I'm going to look up right now, uh, Phyllis Logan, they just, they don't, they don't have a whole lot to work with. 
and uh, I, I think it's it's uh, f- um, good at least that they that they don't end the film on that. That there is this um, additional scene in which we kind of see that Roxanne, Cynthia, and Hortense are trying to make the relationship work, and, and it seems to end hopeful in the sense if you do get the idea that it is going to work out because you have that last line of Cynthia saying, you know, this is the life, isn't it? And both of them are agreeing with it, and that's it's a wonderful journey for Cynthia. It's a wonderful j- journey for Hortense. It's a wonderful journey for Roxanne. And then, unfortunately, more recent and Monica are just kind of these these sidelined characters that uh, are supposed to be, I guess, narrating um, of the emotional journey we're supposed to be going through when we've just already gone through it. So, um, if you uh, are curious to rewatch Secrets and Lies, similar similarly to Naked, it is only available streaming right now through the Criterion Channel. So once again, um, if you are curious, uh, there is a free 30-day trial that you can sign up for for Criterion Channel. Um, and then after that, be sure to cancel it or borrow somebody else's login information. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be charged for it. So um, as always, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on Mike Lee, on Secrets and Lies. Um, you can do that easily enough by reaching out to me by email at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at nolanfixesteeth. Um, catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly by either going to battleshipretention.com and finding I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop-down menu or going to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. Um, I think that's about it. Um, thanks for the patience with the, the short time off. Uh, it was a wonderful vacation up in the Adirondacks. Um, I'm mostly glad to be back, although the upstate weather, I have to say, was significantly more preferable to the weather here in New York City currently, but it is good to be back. It is good to be back uh, to the podcast and to giving this, uh, these episodes to you. Be sure to tune in next week where I will be wrapping up uh, the month of August and Mike Lee with uh, the 2008 film Happy Go Lucky, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 